Good afternoon, everyone. Back in my closet, live for Office Hours. I'm here with my mentor, the Double B, Blaine Bartlett. Hey, Blaine, welcome back to Office Hours. Hey, welcome back myself. Yes, you too. <laughs> I think we're approaching 500 episodes, and there's no one better to start off our show than the Murph. That's right, Laura Murphy is here, <laughs> Senior Vice President of Bolt PR. I should have worn my Chargers hat with Bolt PR instead of my blessed uh, Padre hat. Um, but, you know, Laura, I wanted to have you uh, on uh, because so many people, let alone young women, want to get into PR. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it's evolved a lot from the newspaper, radio and TV days, uh, what PR means. And it seems as if you've uh, evolved along with it in uh, transitioning your focus into alternative sources of PR and so I thought we'd start with how and why you got involved in PR first, and then we'll move on to what that means today. Yeah, no, that's a great, great question. Blaine asked me that just prior, and I was like, you know, we got to save this for the show because it's a good story. <laughs> that's <laughs> why I don't show up early because I don't want to leave it there. <laughs> no, it's, it's a great story because as I was just sharing briefly, um, you know, you're right. It has evolved. And when I actually thought about going into PR, I, I remember the moment I was sitting in my guidance counselor's office. This was my junior year of high school, 1995. And she had, you know how you're supposed to kind of declare your major and figure out what you're going to you know, sign on your admissions application to the college. So she had four specialty areas on the desk in the guidance, the guidance counselor's office. And she was like, okay, you've got business, you've got journalism, you've got psychology and you've got law. She's like, you've got four areas of interest right now. And she's like, how are you going to choose one? And I said, I have no idea. I've, I've got to figure out which I'm going to go into. And she's like, have you ever heard of PR? And I was like, I hadn't. And she was like, you know, you've, you've got to understand that a lot of these areas kind of really touch on an industry that hasn't taken off, but you're going to find with all of these areas in PR, you're likely going to touch them in some ways. In different, in, in different avenues. And I, I was thinking, okay, well, it gave me a focus. So I jotted public relations down in my application for Western Michigan University. And at the time, there wasn't an actual specific curriculum for it. And so I went in and I took my two years of communications general studies. And the second year going into your junior year is when you can actually uh, get into the program. So I got into PR. And then when I graduated, there was about 20 of us that graduated with a PR degree at Western Michigan. So it was very exclusive, very small, very tiny. And I loved the evolution of what I learned. I remember one of the only classes that I actually got out of um, the PR curriculum at Western was crisis communications. That was really the only differentiator to what PR was versus what general communication studies was. So I got out of college and immediately I didn't go into PR. I actually went into marketing. I was working for uh, a marketing agency out of Detroit doing automotive marketing. So I did that for a couple of years, traveled around the U.S. and loved it. But I really missed the avenue of PR because there was uh, more of an interpersonal relationship component to it. And I loved the writing. I loved to be able to tell people's stories in a way that I feel like felt like, you know, made an impact. So I I decided to go back into that avenue. 
and started working with really big, you know, branded clients like McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and some of these big brands who were really finding how important PR is to them and really connecting with the consumers. So that's kind of how that evolution took, took off. So, yeah, you're very, you know, very front end of the formal piece of uh, PR mm-hmm. uh, and the formal, yeah codification of it as, as, as an industry. Um, before that, it was basically the Wild West. You just kind of shoot from your hip and away we go. Yeah, yeah. Which has informed how the leadership function in that space, in the PR space, uh, actually shows up. And I, w- I would imagine, just in your experience here, that you've seen some significant changes in how leadership is actually executed. Yeah, in, you know, in, in, in that space again here. What what's your observation around that? Yeah, you know, I think the the main part of where leadership with PR specifically comes in is the connection. You have to first know what you're writing about, what you're um, telling the story about. You have to immerse yourself into the brand story. You can't just bring on you know an opportunity and just kind of you know, make things up and just kind of assume things. You have to immerse yourself into that opportunity and especially in any kind of a role, role, whether it's leadership or you're a junior team member, you have to know the story you're telling. And you have to connect with the people that you're telling the story to. So when it comes to the writing, when it comes to even the journalists that you're, you're working to try to tell the story, it all starts with connecting. And so I think, I think really that comes down to the most important aspect. And it, it's, I think, really been a huge component to always evolve in the way you're connecting. So that's always a practice that I think you can continue to learn cr- to craft in how you connect with the story and what you're writing and to the people that you're writing it to. Yeah. And amplification has always been a big part of public relations. It's one thing to get a story set. It's another thing to have eyeballs or community engage with the story. And today with digital marketing, it brings on a whole nother size scope and scale to amplification. And you not are only a award-winning PR person and content person, but digital marketing agency. And how do you see those three things intertwine today? Uh, I know uh, we just saw a PR release from uh, VCon and, and Gary, and I'm looking it over and I'm like, do I really care what this says? Does anyone ever really read this? It's just the title that is going to be read by 99% of the people. Um, so I'm curious how what used to be a big part or parcel to being a PR person now is just a minor component of another side of uh, the PR and content, which is the digital marketing or amplification of the placement. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's where, again, you have to build a team from so many different expert insights and backgrounds to be able to understand how you can tell that full story. So you're right. Like they all have to be integrated in some way. You can't just do PR and not have potentially a digital marketing component attached to it because so many people don't, you know, read print newspapers. They don't watch TV. Maybe they're just on social media. It, it allows a widespread approach to connecting to people from so many different areas. So you really do have to attach a digital marketing component to any kind of PR and being able to tell the story 
or get a brand, you know, out there that you can kind of help, you know, represent them. Yeah, I'm going to get pretty granular here with this question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I yeah, was coming up uh, through the ranks, um, you know, my, my background was marketing, international business. And the early on, and this goes back to the 1970s and whatnot, there was confusion in, in, the, in, the, in the, the marketing space between sales and marketing. Yeah, how are they the same? How are they different? Are they the same? Is it just kind of different words for it? Also, as you fast forward here, marketing and PR. My experience, you know, you know, going back to about the 90s, you know, where where you kind of got your launch, there was confusion about the distinction between marketing and PR. Mm -hmm. What yeah. is this? Yeah, those of you that are listening, particularly, you know, somebody yeah, in their 20s, uh, particularly a young woman in their 20s that are interested in coming into the PR world. What's the difference between PR and marketing? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's tough, too, because, you know, I don't know if there's ever specifically an identification where you can say it's it's so black and white because mm -hmm. they do integrate so easily and so well. Yeah. You know, I think brand application and amplification in terms of just telling a story um, through um, writing, through, you know, a um, interview through anything like that, when you're kind of telling a story to the media, that really is the way that you can brand amplify something. The way I look at marketing is really just more of a tangible, tangible component, experiential, you know, where you can get a product in somebody's hands, you can do on-site events, things like that. So it's kind of an approach where you you're telling a story, but in two different ways, two different avenues. So they very much so integrate a lot of times though, because with social media marketing, that really falls more into the marketing realm because the storytelling really comes from more of a tangible source, but also it feeds into PR because you're telling a story through a band channel. So it's, it's not so black and white. So I'd say anybody who's interested in doing um, PR, I would really kind of understand whether or not you want to do more of the onsite events, the experiential marketing, because that's kind of where that lends itself. And then PR is more of like, the storytelling and the, and the writing and the journalism skills come into play. Yeah. And the thank duality. You. Oh, go ahead, Lane. No, I'm just saying thank you for that distinction. Yeah. I... Yeah. Many people uh, definitely had the same question. So that, uh, I agree. That was a great question. And to that matter, though, you are very passionate right now, later on in your career, not only about the duality of empowering young women uh, in the profession today, uh, but also promoting a positive workplace culture, um, which is not easy today uh, with uh, the diverse and divided uh, workplace and separate workplace. Uh, what are some of the key components is you do promote and empower positive workplace culture uh, for all, uh, for, for everyone? What, what are some of those challenges today that, that you're facing? I, well, it, it, I look at it more as just even an opportunity. I think anybody in a leadership role knows that they're just given a chance to make some kind of a difference, make some kind of an impact. And, you know, especially as we talked about some of the younger folks who are coming into this industry and, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're really trying to find their footing or find out if this is even what they want to do. I go back to connecting into the early conversation because it is really about building the connections with people. I love to empower, but I do that through empathy. And I think where the empathy starts is from listening. And so I think 
really the best approach that I've always had or have currently now in my role is to, as a leader is a lot of listening, a lot of taking that backseat mm-hmm. approach to when, you know, they're talking or when they're communicating to understand, you know, those social cues to really kind of feed into what it is, you know, know that they're, if they're struggling, you can kind of tell, take a backseat. I tune everything around me out so I can really focus on them. And I can tell that matters because they feel more vulnerable to be themselves. And I I think that's important because if you're going to create the next generation of leaders, if you're going to, you know, create the next, you know, group of folks who are just so passionate about this world of PR marketing or social media and digital, you know, you have to hear where they want to be, where they want to go, and you have to hone in on those opportunities to give those to them. So all of that starts with listening, connecting to where they're at, and showing the empathy to give them that self-confidence. So true. And meeting people where they're at, as well as being an intelligent follower is a great leader, which unfortunately takes so many years uh, for us to realize, as Blaine and I have taken so many years to realize uh, what it is to be a compassionate capitalist, a con- complete leader uh, by meeting people where they're at and listening uh, mm-hmm. and leading through learning and listening, which you have done such a tremendous job of. Laura Murphy, Senior Vice President at Bolt PR, boltpr.com. Uh, what a great uh, journey so far. We look forward to you uh, coming back on in some of our shows and helping especially young women uh, with their careers and pursuing their potential. Please come back and join us again. I would love to. Thank you both so much for having me. So great Thank to you. see you. Great okay. job. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I finally, I finally know the difference between PR and marketing, and I've been in it 35 years. So <laughs> that was such a job. I'm going to have to go back and listen again. Uh, anyway, waiting in the wings is Jesse Cole. Jesse here. Uh, co-founder of The Seed Lab, theseedlab.com. Welcome to Office Hours, my friend. Thank you guys for having me. And before we start, just a quick congratulations, David. I saw that your daughter graduated from Indiana. Uh, I saw that on your your social platforms, and you know you guys look real happy. And congrats to her. Well, thank you. It meant a lot to sure us. Thing. And, uh, I travel about two hundred days a year. Blaine and I during COVID were in shock together. We're like, I think you know it's been about thirty years since I didn't travel, and uh, we were discussing that. And this is the first week of my life where I took a, pr- a private aviation to get to that from a commencement speech, and ended up in Bloomington, Illinois almost missed the graduation. So if you saw that joy on my faith, it was actually that I made it by nine minutes to the graduation to watch my daughter graduate with honors. Uh, I made it nonetheless. And then last night for the first time, I had a mishap with my visa. And so I'm now back in my closet, leaving for Sydney a day late, but nonetheless, a dollar short. But more importantly, both were huge emotional swings for me. Uh, And you've been there as well. Uh, I'm sure. And, you know, you really help people with uh, the emotional instability, the swings that we take as entrepreneurs and founders. Um, And I would love for you to help us understand, you know, how we can help uh, young entrepreneurs, new entrepreneurs, startup entrepreneurs with probably the most exhausting of all components of being an entrepreneur, the emotional swings. Sure. I mean, especially especially in today's environment which has, you know, sort of saw the worst through COVID and, you know, sort of feeling the after effects a year, year and a half, two years later. Uh, there's a lot of malaise in the market. There's a lot of uncertainty. 
things feel fractured. And I think we're starting to see a reset in the venture community uh, across, you know, multiple asset classes. So, you know, a lot of people are, are sitting on pins and needles here waiting to see some kind of direction. Uh, but look, I, I'll backtrack for a second. You know, I was at, at Columbia for graduate school, and this was back in, you know, many, many, many years ago, right at the turn of the, the you know, 2000. And I walked into a class, and it was an entrepreneur class. And, you know, the teacher, the professor, you know, wrote on the, wrote on the blackboard. You know, we still have blackboards back then. And for those of you who don't know, this is chalk and, and, a, and a black piece of slate. Uh, and he wrote the word entrepreneur in big black in big white letters. And he went around the room and he said, you know, can anyone tell me what an entrepreneur is? And, you know, every hand went up uh, and he said, yeah, kind of. And yes, not really. And no, not really. And uh, he went back to the board and he put a big X through the word entre. And above the word entre, he wrote the word emotional. Then he went around the room and said, can anyone tell me what an entrepreneur is? A couple of hands went up and. But no one really sort of mastered the answer. And he said, look, in order to be an effective entrepreneur, you know, you have to understand that it's going to be an emotional journey every single day. And for those of us who have been entrepreneurs, me included, uh, you know, you're one day, you know, on top of the world. You know, you're a PO away from being the next big thing. You're a valuation away from being, quote unquote, the next big thing. And then the next morning, you're one employee from quitting, you're one failed PO or some kind of fracture in your supply chain, and you're thinking, holy cow, I'm going gonna, I'm, 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 I'm gonna to implode here. So it's really, really sort of manifesting the emotionals up and up and down and the swings, which really creates this bipolarization effect. Mm -hmm. And for us at the Seed Lab, you know, 50% of our thesis is really investing behind what we call formidable founders. You know, we spend a lot of time with our founders. We want to make sure that our founders are malleable, that they're communicative, that they're frugal with capital, that they take direction. And part of the things that we offer at the Seed Lab is our human capital is really as valuable as the money we put into these businesses. Because between my partners and I, we've all had the CEO experience. We've all been through the wars. Right. We've all taken companies through various forms of liquidity, both public and private, sat on boards, public and private and been investors, both personally, you know, and, and, and through our fund. And so we understand the tribulations on a day to day. And we really want to get behind people that can value our support, lean into us and we can become an extension, you know, of their sort of C-suite. Yeah, and you've mentioned the word values a couple of times, Jesse, and I, I want to kind of hone in on that a little bit. Um, <clears throat> the entrepreneurs that you're primarily funding today uh, are significantly younger than you and I or David. Uh, typically, I would I would guess. Would that, would that be fair to say? Yeah, that's 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 certainly <laughs> fair. And look, yeah. I I have I have a partner who's in his late sixties and another partner who's in his early thirties. So we've got this multi generational lens. Uh, but yeah, I'm right in the middle. And so most of the people that we're talking to and most of the people I spend my time with are half my age. Yeah. So with that kind of a, a demographic, the value core, and this is just my own experience, but the value core of that generation um, is more, and if I, if I look at some of Edelman's surveys uh, in the workplace, they, the, the value is different than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, entrepreneurs starting up that would have been in their 
forties uh, or thirties. If I, but if I go back, you know, if I go back thirty years, somebody coming into the marketplace there wouldn't have had the same value set up internally, and they wouldn't have been valuing the same thing. How is that translating into? Yeah, the, the the rubber hitting the road here because that value core informs behavior. Yeah, well, you know, from 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 a sociological perspective, you know, we think differently than the generations below us, mm -hmm. right? We have different work ethics. We came up in a different time. Technology has certainly usurped anything that I am sort of in and around my generation. Like I'm, I'm so behind, and technology is changing so rapidly. That once I get my sort of hands in and around a particular technology, they're already coming up with the next thing. And I can only understand how distracting this is, you know, not only to our generation. However, we don't rely on it as much because we didn't grow up with it. So we know what it's like to live without it. But the younger generation, that's all they know. And so there's sensory overload here. And so, you know, some of the look. The, the younger generation, these guys who are, and women who are starting their own platforms, they're doing an incredible job and it takes a lot of courage, right? Um, but they, they've got better or bigger support networks to fall back on, right? They've got so many forums and platforms and ways to sort of seek, you know, assistance and help, which we didn't have, you know, coming up through the system, right? And so, you know... I, look, I, I think that people need to learn at, 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 at any generation. Uh, I think people need to learn to listen a little bit better. Mm -hmm. I think that they need to be patient, you know, with all forms of social and, and, and so forth, that people want us to get the visibility for their for their platforms immediately. Right. And it's fleeting. And so that's why, the you know, the, the, the CACs are so high now and that we're trying to train some of our founders to acquire their customers in non-traditional ways, cheaper ways, because that can be that can be cannibalizing, you know, to a, to a, to a, to a startup business. Yeah, you know, one of the things one of the things that 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 I have recently started is because, you know, I'm now seeing with this sort of reset, and we have no long no we have no idea how long this reset's going to last, but I am looking at companies through the seed lab lens for for potential investment. Uh, but also through a platform called the Moss Lab. And I created the Moss Lab because I am now seeing founders, you know, uh, in, 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 in multi-demos that are looking for capital. They're looking for marketing support. And every time you speak to a founder, you know, it doesn't matter if they're looking to raise 50 million, 100 million, or 2 million, you know, from a, from a pie perspective, it's the same four categories, right? Mm -hmm. It's marketing, they don't have enough visibility. They want a little PR. They want some marketing, some rebranding, rebranding, some 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 branding thesis work, you know, things of that nature. Uh, then it's you know personnel. We've bootstrapped this business for the longest time. You know, we need some people to sort of take away some of the responsibilities from me, put people into their core competencies and so forth. We just need support. So they're looking to raise money to bring in some talent, right? The third is supply chain. You know, the fourth is inventory, right? And so get the inventory. You can fulfill these POs without having to run and get a, you know, an SBA or a loan, right? And so it doesn't matter if you're 2 million or 50 million, I am seeing the same needs for all this capital. So we've created a platform where we can go and assist early stage to, to, to emerging managers, 
um, to support them in all of these initiatives. Teach them how to hire, teach them how to fire, teach them how to reorganize their personnel footprint, reduce their overhead or their headcount, sort of talk to them about systems, talk to them about supply chain, talk to them about financial engineering, talk to them about marketing, talk to them about PR, where to spend it. Because right now it's so tricky out there that the more people involved to assist these younger people who are really putting their best foot forward, just don't have the experience. It's a, it's a crucial time for us to step in and, and, and help these guys. Yeah. And people is a key component when we're talking about seed capital. By the way, I wore, I wore this shirt for you, Jess. So. Oh, you know, I was going to ask you when you said you took a uh, when you took a, a flight to Indiana. Was it a wheels up? Because wheels. No, up, they would have got me there. They would have got me to the right place. So. Yeah, there. You know, Kenny, Kenny, and the crew are, are Ken, great. Kenny guys. and Gary, Kenny and Gary, I've been there from the start. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Kenny, and I'm a big fan of Gary. And I and I recently heard yesterday that Kenny stepped down because yeah. the, the stock has been underperforming, and it's you know there's been some mention about going going under or filing for bankruptcy, which is really unfortunate. But I was an early investor, you know, in the company and, and I got out right at the you know, the the first day of trading and it's probably the best trade I've made because I'm usually not that smart or not that fortunate. Yeah, no, good good people. And just what we're talking about uh is the last thing I wanted to ask about is what you look for, especially in the earlier stages, in the people, uh in the founders, the entrepreneur themselves. What do you think today is the strongest characteristic uh, to be successful as an entrepreneur or a founder? I mean, that's the million dollar question. I mean, we, we look at those, we look for those people, you know, every single day and everybody sells themselves really well, especially now. Everyone tells a really great story. Everyone has created a product that's going to be the next big thing or that has somehow demonstrated to, to, to tackle a particular pain point. Um, you know, I'm still learning that myself, David, you know, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a really, really, really tough question to answer. You know, I like people that listen. I like people that are patient. Of course, we like people that are frugal with cash. Um, but for the most part, it's people that have the experience and going back to my original commentary about the professor I had back in graduate school, you know, there's just a certain type of person that can weather the storm better than others. And there are certain people that, you know, when things get really, really tough, they sort of disappear. You know, we're looking for those people who are not going to disappear, understand that it's temporary. Let's put our, you know, our caps on and, and think about how we can sort of, you know, maneuver through these difficult times. It brings me to one scenario and then I'll, uh, I'll sign off. You know, in Apollo 13, the movie, you know, Ed Harris, when these guys were up in space and carbon monoxide was filling the, filling the space shuttle, and he walked in and he said, you know, look, we have six hours. These guys are going to die. And he dumped on a, you know, a, a, in a box that this is what we have to work with. These are all the parts. Let's put it together. You know, that's, you know, trying to find people that can do that in the toughest hour, in the darkest moment. You know, those are the people that we, we look for. But the, 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 the you know, it's, it's quite difficult. Yeah. If it was easy, everybody would do it. And that's what... I remind myself in the darkest moments from 35 years of being an entrepreneur uh, as, you know, we are just as close as we think we are sometimes and finding the right people. I will tell you one thing later on in my career I learned, uh, and you talked about listening. Uh, one of the areas I used to say it was a desire that you must be what you can be, but I actually put one thing ahead of that now, which is 
uh, asking for help. Uh, if I can find an entrepreneur early on with radical humility uh, that asks for help, uh, it's a resource that can be uh, completely David, that's uh, overlooked. That's a, that's a great point. I think, you know, the younger, when I was running a fashion brand called Hot Hippie, you know, we had a hundred something employees at our peak, you know, and, and for the most part, they were from a much younger generation and they never really could ask for help. And when they would make a mistake, that mistake was swept under the carpet. It was just a matter of time before that mistake became sort of paramount to everything else. Every, as they say, everything comes out in the wash and they can become, you know, really, really detrimental to the, you know, acceleration of the business. So, you know, yeah, I think that's a great point. People asking for help and knowing that it's available and not to be ashamed of it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, we certainly appreciate uh, you and all the support you're giving to, I believe, and I know you two believe this. I know that the entrepreneurs are going to save the world. They can worry about sustainability. They can delay uh, the ultimate for the entrepreneur to figure out how to change plastic bottles into energy or food yeah. or something. That's what's going to save the world. And, yeah. you know, people behind those people, the Wizard of Oz, as I say, the people behind the curtain are people like you, Jess, that uh, are funding uh, the future saviors uh, of our country and the world. So thank you so much for doing that. Co-founder of Seed, Seed Lab and Moss Lab. Come back and we got many shows. I know Blaine would love to have a further conversation. SeedLab.com. Jess Cole, thank you so much. All right, guys. Thanks. Have a good evening. You bet. Talk care. to you soon. Thanks. All right. Have a great night. Thanks. All right. Good. Those guys get overlooked because they do make a lot of money when they're right. Yeah. Uh, but they put it... They, Timing and risk tolerance is completely different when you're looking at a seed uh, venture oh, group seed like that. Startup like that. We got the recruiter guy here. Uh, he is the ultimate salesperson, Bill Humbert. Uh, and he has a new book here, a current book out, Expect Success, The Science of the Over 50 Career Search. Uh, welcome, Bill, to Office Hours. Thank you, uh, David. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And let's talk about the first Napoleon, Napoleon Hill type of perspective, which is you're not going to be successful until you expect success. Uh, how have you put that into context in your in your book? I what I did in my book was all the way through it. I coached people to expect that they will be successful and. I will, I name my chapter steps for a reason because it's 12 steps to find a job. And, and, to, get, and to get sober, I heard. Is that right, Blaine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for that as well. There is that. <laughs> um, and, and so at the end of each step, I give them a little bit of encouragement. And then also, did you do this yet? Did you do that? A checklist of things that they needed to get accomplished. And so, uh, so I even end my talent attraction speeches with expect success. You know, uh, the, the tagline on the book, and, and this is really kind of where your sweet spot is focused, um, but the tagline, the science of the over 50 career search. So, you know, people that are in their late 40s, in the 50s, What's the challenge that they face out, you know, in, I mean, outside of the obvious ageism that might be present there, but what's the real challenge that they think uh, or that you think that they're actually dealing with 
as compared to somebody entering the workforce in their 20s or 30s? Somebody entering the workforce in their 20s or 30s feel like they can do anything. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's 50 sometimes believe the mantra that you can't get a job after 50. Yeah. And it's their belief is what prevents them. It's not necessarily their experience or their skills. It's their belief that they can't. They get so discouraged. And in my first step, I talk to them about how to work their way through that discouragement. Yeah, I love that. You know, Neville Goddard, uh, one of my favorite uh, authors, talks about assumption um, is everything. Assumption is everything. It all starts with the assumption made manifest. Yeah. So uh, you know, that mindset. Uh, how, so I'm going to just jump in here real quick. How do you work with these folks uh, that are in the 50s and they've got a pretty set mindset? How do you begin to get them over the hump and say, no, 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 no. There's another way to think. You got to think different. How do you actually not only suggest that, but actually have it take root and grow? Well, there's a story in the book about a gentleman that during the pandemic, so from March 15th of 2020 to December 31st of 2020, I pivoted my business from the recruiting side of things to the career coaching side. And I coached 32 professionals to find new positions. And some of their stories are in my book. One of them in particular was a 67-year-old CFO. And my first conversation with him was, I, I still want to contribute, but I, I'm too old for somebody to hire. And I said, yeah, you're being silly. <laughs> and so I, I coached him because I had recruited 60-year-olds, 65-year-olds, never a 67-year-old, but I've re I recruited 65-year-olds for clients of mine. Mm -hmm. And I said, let's work through this. If you really want a new position as a CFO, we'll find one. Well, let's, let's be honest, 67, you, that makes you a young president these days, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, sadly true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, th those arguments, I have the lawyer in me. I'm like, if anybody tells me 67 is too old, I'm going to say too old for what? Yeah, let's be honest. If I, if I can run a country, I can run your, co your company. That's no problem. <laughs> right. Well, he, in three months, found a job where he got paid the same as he was being paid before. And he only had to work part-time. <laughs> nice. Yep. And so it's overcoming that feeling that you won't be successful. That's what it takes. Yeah. And, and you're an expert in, in more than one area. As you talked about, you went from recruitment, but retention's another area, but also, you know, getting offers that are acceptable. You're an expert at the percentages of the offers and counter offers that uh, end up in employment and let alone retention are extraordinary with, your experience of reading over 400,000 resumes in so many different states. Uh, it's, you know, really the situational knowledge and expertise. You know, what do you think the difference is uh, in that uh, counteroffer that so many are accepted compared to most people are even afraid to counter, let alone uh, getting a reconciled agreement with the counteroffer? So I guess the question is, who's doing the counteroffering? 
if mm-hmm. if you are um, you turning in your resignation and the company suddenly decides that you're too valuable to let go and then they offer you something, um, it's probably not a good idea to accept it because they've already demonstrated where they feel you belong. They're just going to use you for a brain drain for a while. Um, the counteroffer from a candidate perspective, you should always ask for something. It may be more money. Um, and the way I, I tell them to, to do is, is listen to the person extending the offer and then tell them how excited you are to come to work for this company. And then say, do you have any flexibility in your offer? And if their answer is the offer is the offer, well, you got a decision to make. But if they ask the question, why do you ask? Stick that foot in the door as fast as you can. (laughs) And, you know, you can say something like, well, you know, I was just I was hoping for more. What you didn't know, because in my coaching, I tell them don't give any numbers out. And and so what you didn't know is I was making right about that before, um, is there any way that you can give me some more money for doing this job? And, you know, many times they'll come up with something and, and, and here's a, an important piece of advice. Don't be afraid to ask for a sign-on bonus because the sign-on bonus money comes out of a different bucket of, in finance than salaries. And so you may be where you belong salary wise, but they may be able to give you a sign on bonus. So smart. That is, that's good. Now I'm I'm struck by a statistic that stands out for me and I've been in business for a lot of years and this one is really interesting to me. But you're not old enough. You're not old enough to be president yet. (laughs) Yeah. Not old enough to be president. Give me two more years. (laughs) Um, 89% 89% of all employees that you've recruited remain in their company longer than two years. That, that area of retention. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a profoundly impressive statistic. Uh, just given the experience I've had with recruiting and that sort of thing in, in the context of fit and feel, I'll, I'll use an apparel <laughs> analogy here. Uh, people stick around. They'll put the suit on. If it, if it looks good, feels good, there's a fit and feel. How do you sort for that fit and feel in the recruiting process such that you have a 90% retention rate? It's, um, well, you know, since I've been doing this since 1981, there are certain instincts too, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I can pretty much today, I, you know, somebody's always going to fool me sometime, but I can pretty much today be empathetic enough while interviewing this person to get a sense for them and what they intend to do. You know, if it's going to be, I'm just going to use this as another step in the ladder so I can bail out, or I'm really interested in this company and therefore I want to help grow the company. So, so it's, it's really not that difficult, but the other thing is you have to know, I, I almost all of my interviews with the exception of labor interviews, and I do those too. Almost all of my interviews on zoom or in person or even on the phone last an hour. And those are professional positions as a manager positions, the executive positions could easily be an hour and a half. And I, 
have eight different ways I can structure interview questions. And so I just, <laughs> and, and one of my favorites is the pause or silence. And I will ask a behavioral question. And as the person's responding, I'm going like this. So they see me going up and down. They think, well, I'm on the right path. I'm on the right path. And then they think they, they finished responding and I don't say anything. I just do this. Humans don't like silence. <laughs> and pretty soon they enter the confessional. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been 30 years since my last confession. And let me tell you some more things that maybe I shouldn't be telling you. <laughs> well, it's an amazing thing, not only to change the mindset, the heart set, but to combine the handset to not only expect success, but to put a scientific approach behind finding a new career over 50, especially in your step-by-step -step guide. And of course, your personalized assistance has been exceptional for decades and decades. And if you want the best, go to therecruiterguy.com, buy the book, expect success, whether you're 40, 50, 60, 70, and I assume in the future it's going to be even 80, uh, our friend uh, is our your best guide. Bill Humbert, thank you so much. The Client Attraction Specialist at Recruiter Guy. Thanks for joining us. Come back. We need more great advice. Anytime you want me, just let me know. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, as Bill. Soon as, as soon as Blaine's old enough, he's going to call. I promise. Okay. Sounds good. You can get uh, my training wheels off here. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Uh, we are so blessed to be here every Thursday, almost 500 episodes. We're so very close. I think we're going to go over the mark next week. Uh, we are. Is this, this is actually number 499. 499. There we go. So what a week. I'll be uh, celebrating in Sydney then or Bali, one of these places. Bali. You're going to be in Bali. I'm, I'm sure I got all the paperwork set this time. Uh, my wonderful producers, Raluca and Gigi, will come find me if not and uh, we're all going to be in indianapolis uh at vcon next week uh after bali and then in vegas the week after uh so we are coming to visit reluca as well uh blaine what is your takeaway of the day uh that's a good question today i'm not uh sure exactly how i want to put this uh because i'm not sure exactly what it is that i want to say <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, I, I think for me that just as we talked with these three uh, folks today, the idea again of, uh, and, and I think Laura actually put it fairly well here, of connection. Yeah, just being able to connect with whomever it is that you're actually interacting with in a way that makes a difference. And it's the difference that makes a difference. So whether uh, it's in a PR uh, arena or a, a startup seed, you know, working with a founder, or if you're actually trying to play somebody, the connection is really important. That's where we're working. Yeah. You know, and, and for me, we had such great experience. If you add up, you know, the three unbelievable guests that we have, uh, my takeaway is that don't discount situational knowledge. Uh, I know there's a lot of talk about my favorite servant, which uh, is not Alex Iceman, it's the other AI, not Alan Iverson either. Uh, but AI is this tremendous tool. Um, but I was I was thinking about in PR how we're utilizing artificial intelligence now uh, with venture as well, you know, and then especially in resumes. I was thinking they're worthless without the experience, situational knowledge, 
uh, of what we get in intellectual, inspirational, and emotional intelligence. Um, and all three uh, really represent that so well. And that's why they can empower our next generation um, and instruct, mentor, and coach. Um, and that is something that I hope that everyone takes away is the value of situational knowledge. That's why it is okay that we have an older president or it is okay that a 67-year-old uh, is a CFO because you can't discount the dummy tax that all of us have paid, uh, which is why I hang out with the double B, Blaine Bartlett, BlaineBartlett.com. He has extraordinary relationship capital and situational knowledge. That's what makes office hours what it is for here so many years, believe it or not, and almost 500 episodes. Blaine Bartlett, I will see you when I get back from Sydney and Bali. Yes, I will. can't wait. Uh, we got Unstoppable uh, at my VIP event at VCon uh, on Friday. For anyone that's going to be around, please stop by and support the Unstoppable Foundation at VCon. I want to thank Gary Vaynerchuk for being supportive. We got Tom Bilyeu, Austin Eckler, Mike Chandler, Jeff Hoffman from Priceline. We have uh, a missing Sean Dill, Jim Quick. Uh, the list is going on and on. We have a star-studded group who all support Unstoppable. And we're going to be rocking and rolling on stages and podcast booths and dinners at VCon, everyone. Blaine, thank you for your support, and I will see you soon. Okay, buddy. Enjoy your trip. I'm glad you got the visa handled. Wheels, Wheels up. up, baby. Putts down. Let's make it happen. Thank you, Blaine Bartlett, for joining us. Thank you, Reluca. Thank you, Gigi, for the best show on the platforms, uh, the multicasters themselves. If you want my book guide exercises, it's free. It's we. Email me, david at dmelcher.com. I will sign a book. I'll send it to you. I'll pay for shipping and the book. No matter what country I'm in, I'll answer it myself. David at dmelcher.com. Everyone, put your hands together. We are blessed. Pray for me. Be more interested than interesting. Go out. Let someone know they're not alone. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow from somewhere else. Peace.